Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Listen up this way. No, just kidding. <laughs> Listen to me. Sweet ass. Who got a lolly brought to them? Anyone? Oh, wonderful. Yay. So good. Um, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we're in the book of Daniel at the moment, a book in the Old Testament. And I was reflecting today on two things. The first of how perfectly paralleled the three testimonies we've had have been. You think of um, Josh and Britt's, I think this was the first week of Daniel, and then Shine's last week, and how it was like, it was perfectly aligned what Shine was sharing about um, priorities and who he worships. And then when Nick um, taught on Nebuchadnezzar's life, And you just say, man, it's the same story of putting God at the centre and he's sovereign and he does it all. And um, that's what I was thinking about today. And I was thinking, it reminded me, if, if if, if you're at this point where each time someone gets up to get baptized and you're like, man, I wanna get baptized. Oh man, like this is what I wanna do. Like do something about it before the end of this Daniel series, okay? You've got, I think, five weeks. So you've got five weeks to do something about it. Tonight we have Daniela, Daniel's sister, no, just kidding, <laughs> um, speaking on Daniel 5. And Daniela is a very awesome person in our community. And I thought while she's up here, give her a little quick bio because it feels weird to always like talk about yourself, you know. So I'll give her a bio for you. So I'm Danny, intrigued. What are you going to say? Well, Danny is one of our awesome life group leaders at the street. And she's part of a girls group that comes together and talks about the Bible, has tea. They've got a tea box in the kitchen. It's um, running low, so we'll take donations. Yeah, nice. Um, she's also a lawyer by day. So when she is talking about how Daniel in his workplace is doing things for the Lord, like that's that's what she's living out, right? She's a lawyer day by day and then is gifted in, in teaching the word and comes and teaches us here on a Sunday night. So we're super blessed to have you. And I just want to say thanks for everything that you've prepared and how blessed we are all by it. So can we actually just give her a big clap? And I'm going to pray for her and then I'm going to go. So let's pray. You can stay if you want. Oh, okay. Lord, we thank you for Daniela, Lord, and we thank you for um, her whole world, Lord, her work, her family, her friendships. And Father, tonight we pray that in all that she's prepared, will you speak through her to us, Lord? Will we all be listening? And um, will we respond um, however you call us to, Lord? In your name we pray. Amen. Good evening and welcome along to the street. Thanks, Annie, for my cooler introduction. Something she forgot is I'm also an ex-flatmate of hers. And she was on the receiving end of me learning to cook as a 19-year-old. So you're welcome, Anna. No more veggie slice in your life ever again. <laughs> she was haunted by it. Um, I'm going to start by asking you guys a question. What do iconic R&B girl group Destiny's Child 
17th century Dutch painter Rembrandt, Grammy award-winning pop singer Sam Smith, great English poet Lord Byron, and heavy metal band Iron Maiden have in common, other than really pensive glares at the camera. No takers? Well, did you know that they've all produced work that was either inspired by or makes reference to things that we read about in Daniel chapter 5 tonight? How about that? So as Anna said, we're in this series of Daniel. Daniel's a book in the Old Testament of the Bible, and it, it follows the life of Daniel, a man, a young man who was exiled from his home in Jerusalem, and he was taken captive to Babylon by a king called Kim, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he was put to work in the king's royal service, and he actually became quite high up and high rank. He became trusted and respected all while still holding very firm to his faith and his belief in God. And last week, if you were here, and if you weren't, here's a little recap for you. We looked at the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. Not hearing many kids called Nebuchadnezzar nowadays, are we? And that was in Daniel chapter 4, where we, we read and we heard about his crazy story of how he was this powerful, prideful king who was brought down to earth. He was humbled. God humbled him. He brought him to a place of humility. We heard about his story. Tonight we're looking at chapter 5. And it takes place in 539 BC, so just the other day. This is nearly 25 years after the end of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign and after he died. So we've fast forwarded a little bit since where we landed last week. The man in charge in chapter 5 is a guy called King Belshazzar. Although he wasn't actually the king, he was kind of like this thing called a co-regent, which is his dad was actually the king, but his dad was often out of town, so he kind of held the post in his place. So he's kind of second in command, but for all intents and purposes, he was the king. King Belshazzar had been in power for about 15 years by the time we reach him in this part of chapter 5. And as we're going to learn tonight, he's about to get the fright of his life because he too is about to get a lesson in humility. He's about to get a lesson in God's sovereignty. You know, this is a story from thousands of years ago, and it involves a culture and a setting and a time that's very different than the time and setting we find ourselves in today. But it's far from irrelevant. As I've been preparing for tonight and reading this passage I've really felt these four questions kind of stirring in my spirit that God's been prompting me to kind of present tonight so that we may ask them, we may reflect, and that they will challenge us in the right direction toward God tonight, that they might draw us closer to Him, closer to how He calls us to live. So, shall we dive in? We pick up in chapter 5, verse 1, and the king is throwing a party. We read in verse 1, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Now, obviously, we, they didn't have cameras back then, but I found this painting on the internet, and I just thought it was really, really amazing because it paints, it helps to show the sheer scale of this kind of party. It's not just a small potluck. It is a huge party. 
it says he invited thousands of people. And we get a bit of a hint about what was going on at this party as we continue to read from verse 2. It says, While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. King Belshazzar took what was sacred and he turned it into sacrilege. He took things that were dedicated for the purpose of glorifying God and he completely disrespected them by using them in worship of other gods. He deliberately ordered that they would be brought to his party because he wanted to make a spectacle, make a mockery of them pretty insightful into the kind of man, the kind of leader that he was. It was blasphemous. Things that were set apart to worship God, he debaucherously dragged into disgrace. It's a harrowing picture. Starting on a light note tonight. (laughs) Why? Why why would he do this? And I mean, I I think, and it, it we touched on it last week, it was his pride. It was his hunger for power and prestige and status. He wanted to be top dog, number one, and he was gonna stop at nothing to prove that nothing was above him. He could do what he wanted. And he invited thousands and thousands of people to watch him do it. Pride. We heard about King Nebuchadnezzar's pride last week and how it was his downfall. And again, we see a parallel years later in his successor. You know, as I was thinking about this, I really got this sense in my spirit that God was saying to me that his temple and the things that are made for his glory are no less sacred today than they were back then. They're no less sacred. They just look different than they looked back then. You know, in the book of John, Jesus himself, in the midst, in the course of his ministry, he referred to his own body as the temple rather than this big building that used to be the temple. He spoke about himself being the temple. And he said that his, it would be destroyed and rebuilt in three days, a picture of his death and resurrection. And since his death and resurrection, the temple is no longer a physical place. It is the people of God. We are the temple. We are the sacred temple. You know, in 1 Corinthians, we we read that really clearly. Chapter 3, verse 16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. When it says you, it's talking about the plural, meaning the 
the body of Christ, the church is sacred. It's God's temple. It's set apart. And as members of that, that church, of members of that body, we too are called to be sacred and set apart and different. So the question, the first question on my heart out of this, out of reading and observing how King Belshazzar just completely mocked and disregarded the sacred, my question is, am I keeping the sacred sacred? You know, how do I speak about the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ? And I mean, I mean, church is in capital C. I don't mean like the street church necessarily. I don't mean like the institution of the church. I mean the body of Christ. We are God's church. How do we speak of God's church? Do we honor it? Do we speak life over it? Do we speak hope over it? Or do we drag it through the mud? Do we talk about how it's just not doing enough for me? And I'm, I want to, I want to clarify here that I'm, I'm not speaking there. I know there are times where church with a small c, the institution of the church can, can get it wrong and can cause hurt and can cause harm. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we ignore that. I'm talking about God's church. Do we honor it? Do we hold it sacred? Do we hold it holy? You know, God loves his church. Do we? Do we keep the sacred sacred? And it's it's sometimes hard to do. It's getting harder to do because a lot of people don't. But do we? Do I? Do I keep the sacred sacred? King Belshazzar, he didn't care at all. Do we? So we've had this picture of what was happening at this party and then something crazy happens. And we read in in verse five that suddenly in the midst of all of this opulence and indulgence and debauchery, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking those pop references at the start, the writing on the wall. That's, that's this, this is where it comes from, that phrase, the writings on the wall, Daniel chapter five. <laughs> what a crazy situation, right? A hand writing on the wall. And rightly so, King Belshazzar is freaked out. One commentary I read on this suggested that the reference to his legs becoming weak would be more accurately that his bowels became weak? How's that for a picture of how scared he was? And do you, do you blame him? Like that's a pretty ridiculous thing to have happen in the middle of a party. And in response to this, the Bible says that he calls for help from his most um, kind of special, amazing people. He calls for help from his enchanters and magicians and astrologers and fortune tellers. He calls them around and he says, look, I'll make you third in charge. I'll give you a beautiful, shiny purple cloak. I'll give you power. I'll give you prestige. Just tell me what this means. He's begging them. Tell me what this means. But all of them are stumped. None of them can tell him. 
And this causes him to grow even more freaked out, even more concerned. And clearly he made his concerns very well known because verse 10 says that the king's mother heard what was happening and hurried to the banquet hall. And when she arrives, this is what she says to him. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. What a good instruction, right? How can you control how you look? Um, Especially your pale face. Anyway, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Diviners, diviners, that word. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. You know, this made me realize that Daniel's reputation preceded him. She knew all about him. It had been years since he'd held the post that he held under King Nebuchadnezzar. He was probably about 80 years old by this point. Yet she knew who he was. She knew what he could do. More than that, what's interesting is that she calls him Daniel, his Jewish name. She clearly knew him by his faith as well. He'd obviously worked and lived in such a way that the people who came across him from all walks of life respected him. They knew who he was, regardless of their own beliefs. She called him insightful, intelligent, wise, knowledgeable, full of understanding. She said he's capable, he's clever, he's trustworthy. And this brings me to my next question. What am I known for? And not just by people in the church or in Christian community. What about people who are outside of this, these walls? How do they know me? What would they say about me? Would they know that there's something different about me? Would they see Jesus in me even if they don't know it's Jesus they're seeing? You know, I was remembering back to my first year in university and I'm from Tauranga originally and I moved down to Wellington in 2013 and I was in my first year at law school and it was, you know, fast paced, cutthroat. On the first day they say, turn to the person on your left and to your right and only one of you will be here next year. It was, that was really encouraging. Um, But I remember meeting this girl and she was just sitting on my row and it's a seating chart so you have to sit in the same seat. Um, And I remember meeting her and she was so capable and confident and amazing and I just was like, whoa. She was a diplomat kid and she'd traveled all over the world. She was clearly so intelligent. I was like, this girl, she's amazing. What a, what a woman. Fast forward maybe four or five weeks, and I remember coming to the street. I just started coming along here. And I walk into church, and what do you know? I see her sitting in the front row. And I thought to myself, what? I would never have thought she was a Christian. And I would tell you what, I felt like a ton of bricks hit me. God say to me, you know what? She'd probably say the same about you. That was a game changer for me. I want, to, I, don't, I want people to find out that I love Jesus and not be surprised. I want it to make sense. What am I known for? What are we known for? 
the story continues. And Daniel appears in the banquet hall. And the king asks him to tell him what the writing on the wall means, offering him the same reward in return for doing so. But instead of launching straight in and telling him what the writing means, he starts by telling him and recounting to him King Nebuchadnezzar's story. He reminds him how King Nebuchadnezzar was so powerful and so great, but that he became so arrogant and hardened with pride that God removed him from the throne and took away his glory. He humbled him. He drove him to the wilderness where he lived like an animal and had nothing. Daniel, the first thing he does is remind him of the story. Why does he start with that? And I think it's because we read at verse 22, which is up here on the slides. He then says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, son meaning um, uh, successor, you've not humbled yourself, though you knew all this, though you knew his story, though you knew the outcome of ruling in pride and being hungry for power. You knew that. Yet you have not humbled yourself. You've not listened. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines, you drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, that's why he sent this hand and written this inscription. You know, Daniel's telling the king, you knew better than this. You know what comes from this way of leading and living. Everyone knew. He should have learned. He chose not to. You know, there's a real difference between ignorance and ignorance. Knowing better, but doing it anyway. You know, there's countless lessons that we have been taught in Scripture and in history, right? Do we listen? Do we learn? Do we change? As I was thinking about this, I was thinking of one of my favorite quotes, and it's by a guy called William Wilberforce. And um, he was a politician in the 1700s, and he was the, the loudest voice at the time arguing for the abolition of the slave trade in Britain. And he said in his closing speech when he was making submissions on on changing the law around this, you may choose to look the other way, but never again can you say that you did not know. Sounds a lot like James 4 verse 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. It's a hard question, right? When I know better, do I do better? Do I let God teach me? Do I let him lead me into change? Am I humble and teachable? The chapter ends with Daniel telling the king what the writing means. Basically that his days are over. The kingdom of Babylon is about to fall. Sorry about it. And sure enough, that very night, Daniel was proven right. Babylon was invaded and the king was killed. You know, what's 
interesting, and I found this so interesting as I was reading about the context of this passage, is that the king actually knew the time that he threw the party, he knew that the Persians had encroached and were surrounding the city. He knew that. Yet he threw the party. He invited everyone. Because he had so much faith and reliance on the strength of the kingdom he had built, he was convinced it was impossible, absolutely impossible that anything could ever conquer it. I mean, it wasn't a completely stupid viewpoint by him. Apparently, the walls of Babylon were wide enough to race six chariots side by side around. They were thick, double C. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Anyway. <laughs> Bible teacher Dr. Reynolds Showers wrote about this in, the, in his book, The Most High God. He says, Nebuchadnezzar had made Babylon into the world's mightiest fortress. The outer wall was so thick that no battering rams or instruments of warfare were able to knock it down. The presence of a second inner wall made any attempts to scale the wall suicidal. As a result, Babylon appeared impregnable. The walls of Babylon had been built over the Euphrates River. Thus, that river flowed through the city at all times, providing a constant source of fresh water. In anticipation of a blockade, the Babylonians supplied the city with enough food to maintain its population for more than 20 years. Ancient historians indicate that in light of these great preparations, the people of Babylon laughed at the siege of their city by Medo-Persia. Yet historical records note that Babylon was taken without battle. They were too busy partying, too busy trusting in their man-made kingdom and the physical strength of that kingdom to keep them safe. But it was no match for God. And my final question is, what do I trust to keep me safe? What do I trust to keep me safe? Because we can build the security and all the safety and all the protection into our lives that we could, we, we all, we could do it all. We could set ourselves up for everything to go right. But it's no match for God. And it's, it's, it's a shaky place for us to put our trust. If six chariot-wide walls weren't strong enough, why do we think that you know, our, our human attempts to kind of keep our lives together will be. The only safe and strong and, and ready and stable place for us to put our trust is in God. What do I trust to keep me safe? I'll just ask the band to head on up. You know, even when the king was reminded and told his fate, What's interesting is that we see no repentance from him. No ownership, no accountability. As, as though his pride prevents him from doing that. Would repentance have changed the events that we're about to follow? Not sure. Maybe. Other stories in the Old Testament show that God spared people who did genuinely repent and turn to follow him people of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. In the New Testament, we see that too. There's, you think of the sinner on the cross next to Jesus. 
turned to Jesus and, and he, he repented. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. I'll see you in paradise. We don't know if repentance from the king in that moment would have changed the course of the events that followed. But if God is who he says he is, and I believe that he is, repentance sure would have changed the course of his eternity. And so as we take this next step into our, our gathering tonight, our service tonight, maybe there's something that your spirit's telling you needs to, you need to re- be repenting over tonight and you need to bring before the Lord. You know, there's those four questions. Am I keeping the sacred sacred? What am I known for? When I know better, do I do better? What do I trust to keep me safe? And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, if we, if our lives, if we live them in a way where we, we strive and we're committed to putting God in his rightful place every day in our lives, if we're putting him on the throne every day and saying, that's you, God, I'm living for you, God. I think the answers to these questions will, will follow in, in, a, in a good way. Am I keeping the sacred sacred? I think we inevitably would because we would know God and we would know, we, we would love the things he loves and we would honor the things he loves. You know, if God was in the rightful place in our lives, how we would be known would be the thing, would be known for our love of, for God, would be known for the things of God. If, if God's in his rightful place in our life, we will do better when we know better because we'll be humbled toward his guidance and his teaching and his leading. And if, if God's in his rightful place in our life, we will have our trust in him so it will be placed in the right thing. So tonight, as we take this time to, to worship together, my prayer is that, what is my prayer? My prayer is that you will Lay down what needs to be laid down so that you can place God in his rightful place. Because if you're taking up all the space, there's no space for him. What do you need to lay at the foot of the cross tonight? What do you need to surrender? And in return, you receive God in your life. You receive his love, his wisdom, his power best way to live. So can I invite you all to stand? I'm going to pray and then we're just going to take this time to worship. I encourage you to reflect, be honest, allow God to be honest with you. Give him permission tonight to to touch on the little things that he, he needs to touch on. So God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for, um, Daniel chapter 5 and the, the man of God that Daniel was. Thank you that you spoke through him, that you used him, that he lived for you, God. But the parallel we see of King Belshazzar, God, we, we just pray, Lord, that w- you'll reveal to us the areas that we can be similar, that our pride can get in the way. May we lay those things down tonight. placing you in your rightful place, Lord. It requires humility. 
It requires sacrifice and surrender, but oh Lord, is it worth it? So be stirring in hearts tonight. Be stirring in spirits tonight, I pray. In your powerful name, God. Amen. sing a song about surrendering to Jesus and as we do I just encourage you to um, come forward if you want prayer so there's a symbol of surrendering to the Lord the space up the front if you want to kneel or just make it easy so we can see and pray for you but, um, yeah take, take this song for the down before the King, I surrender now. In your presence and on my
think about it, that is like an incredible trade. All of me for all of Jesus. That's a mean trade. <laughs> I don't know what you're like. You know yourselves better uh, than I do. But when we give ourselves to Jesus, we, we can have all of him in return. That's absolutely amazing. I don't know if you've ever thought of it like that before. When you surrender to Jesus, you can have all of him. All of him to fill up that empty space. All of, all of him to fill up that emptiness and that nothingness and that questioning and that is there more to life than this? We get all of Jesus in that. And I just want to uh, pray for those of you here who um, never made that connection before. That when you give yourself to Jesus, you can have all of Him in return. Can I can I pray a prayer for um, those of you in the room? You might want to join in with me in your heart um, to give your life to Jesus. If you've done this before, you've never done this before. I want to encourage you to pray along with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that's the truth. This moment, uh, we recognize our, our emptiness and our uh, lacking, and we thank you that we don't just have to live in that state forever, but Lord, we can come to you, we can give ourselves to you, and so in this moment, Lord, we lay down our hearts, and we want to pick up Jesus, we want to pick up his love his grace, His righteousness. And I pray, Lord, uh, for those in the room who have never done this before, that, that Lord, you um, would do a work, a, a transforming work, even right in this moment, that um, we would put down ourselves and we pick up Jesus. Lord, we give ourselves to you because we know that we need Jesus. We're not enough on our we're not enough. And so we humble ourselves. It's like Danny's been talking about tonight. We humble ourselves. We don't want to be arrogant. We don't want to be full of pride. We humble ourselves and come to you. We surrender to you. And we thank you that when we surrender to you, you give us the Holy Spirit. You give us Jesus. And we don't have to do this alone. We thank you, Lord.
Keep lifting your voice. I'll stay. I'll stay. I'll stay with arms high, heart abandoned. In all of the one who gave it all. I'll stay my soul, Lord, to you surrender all. I am is your Sing it one more time. I will stand. I'll stand. 